Hello and welcome to the In Publishing podcast, bringing you weekly insights into the newspaper and magazine publishing sector. I'm Kia Byrne and this week my guest is Carolyn Law, Editor-in-Chief of The Week magazine. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor ATEX. ATEX provides software solutions to newspapers, magazines and online publishers worldwide. Its products include Desk, a content management suite with flexible options for efficient digital and print publishing, and cross-advertising, a cloud-based solution providing end-to-end multi-channel advertising management. For more information, go to atex.com. Carolyn Law is the Editor-in-Chief of The Week magazine, which celebrates its 25th anniversary this month. She joined the magazine from the oldie a couple of years after its launch, first as assistant editor, working her way up to deputy editor, editor and now editor-in-chief of the title, which provides a weekly news digest of articles from across the journalistic spectrum. The Week now has 130,000 subscribers, a thriving website, a podcast and spin-off titles including Money Week and The Week Junior, as well as a sister title in the US, which sells 500,000 copies a week. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. You started out in the magazine world working for Richard Ingram's at the Oldie magazine. What was that like? Uh, that was uh, a, a really um, interesting way to get into the business because the Oldie was sort of the last remnants of a slightly more old-fashioned approach to magazine publishing. Our offices were in Soho. It was the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, and it was quite sort of uncommercial in a way. I mean, we, of course, we had commercial imperatives, but they didn't filter through to editorial at all. So it was just a really fun place to work. And Richard was a great boss in that he was very um, demanding and good company. And I just really enjoyed it. But um, it was a very particular place at a particular time. The old has changed since then. And uh, the world has changed a lot since then. But it, we had a lot of fun and had great contributors and who were very nice and very charming. And it was a really soft introduction to that whole world of work, really, because it was more or less my first job. Then you went to work for the week. How did that come about? Well, I loved the oldie, but the money was um, very little. And I could see that in a tiny office like that, I was just no way of going anywhere. Richard was the editor and, you know, that was that. Um so when I heard that there was freelance work going at the week, I just started by doing some freelance work for them. And it sort of ended up as a part time staff job after about a year of contributing in lesser ways. I can't quite remember exactly the time scale of it, but it was a it was a sort of slow approach. And what was the week like working there in the early days? But it was much the same as it is now, except that uh, one major difference is that it was a smoking office, which seems absolutely extraordinary to think that that was ever possible. Everybody seemed to smoke in the office all the time. So for those people who didn't smoke, it was absolutely disgusting. Um, apart from that, there were obviously massive changes of, in the way we approach work through the introduction of the Internet, which we didn't have when I first joined the magazine. I don't. I think there might have been one computer where you could do some internet searches but people weren't using google and it was a completely different world and it's quite hard to imagine how we functioned when there was no ability to check anything online and we were working entirely off paper and newspapers because the week is obviously all gleaned from newspapers and we had to only use the newspapers that we got delivered from the news agent around the corner 
it's quite difficult to imagine that now, isn't it? Um, but when the week launched, critics were sceptical that there was an appetite for bite-sized news, but you've proved them wrong. Uh, you now have a circulation figure of 141,000, including 130,000 paid subscribers. What do you think are the reasons for that success? I think that um, the week was very lucky in the way it was timed. When it launched, people were becoming increasingly time poor. The newspapers were still on paper and, and very big. I think it sort of filled a gap for people who really wanted to be informed, but just didn't quite ever feel they were managing to read the paper that they were buying. Um, that said, a lot of our readers even then were still buying a daily paper as well. So it's obviously something above that. Um, and maybe it was just that people liked the sense of perspective that it gave them, which was unusual and I think still is. It's also the case that there's a certain sort of completeness in the week. It's quite short. You can finish it. So you think a sense that you have obviously not learned everything there is to know that week, but you've got a bit of news, bit of arts, bit of sport, bit of everything. And you feel like you've done it. You've read it. You've completed it. Whereas if you buy a big broadsheet paper in 1997, you'd have to have be reading for sort of all day to, to even begin to finish it. But as you say, the media landscape has changed so much over that 25 years. And so what what are you delivering to readers today when they have so many sources of information coming at them on the internet and from so many different angles? Well, that's the sort of strange thing about the week is it, it, it could have been entirely killed off by the internet and by the digital revolution and all the newspapers becoming available online and many of them offering their content for free, not to mention dozens, if not hundreds and thousands of news sort of sources of news cropping up, some of them that lasted and some didn't. Um, so we were slightly sort of bemused about what was going to happen to us. But I think in a funny kind of way, it worked to our advantage because people just became absolutely lost in the, in the sort of sea of news that suddenly overtook them. And having a sense that here was something that was in one package was quite helpful. And then, of course, we didn't use this word at the time, and I still don't really use it, but we are a sort of curated selection, which I think people found helpful. And I think they trusted us to at least do our best to provide news that was reliable and non-sensational. We also cut out an awful lot of news that people may get elsewhere, but they don't really need too much of sort of murder inquiries and things like that that, we, that don't really necessarily add to to your understanding of the world, but can be quite depressing to read about. Um, I'm going to come on to that curation process a little bit later, but first of all, I wanted to ask, who are your readers? I know it's always a difficult question to answer, but um, is, is there anything that, that can help to define them as a group? I don't, I don't really, yes, I, like you say, it's a difficult one to be asked and it's not one I ever really like to answer because I get certain amount of correspondence from readers and I get a real sense of a very diverse group of people um, find on the whole they're incredibly reasonable uh, because of course they write in and complain about things but they I, I find them very um, reassuring to correspond with because you feel that they will at least listen to your point of view so I, I like our readers um, but who they are is a tricky one I mean if you asked our advertising department they would point to figures about you know 
their sort of the sort of certain wealth categories they fall into they tend to be more prosperous. But that is the case that if you're someone who's got the money to buy a news magazine, it's likely to be more prosperous. They are older. It's always been the case that people who buy news are older. But we also go into a lot of schools, and I know a lot of students buy it. I was quite I was quite pleased to go into an academy school in North Kensington a few months ago and see that they had it in their sixth form library. Um, so it's a, it is a very diverse bunch, but it is also, I think there's that, that term ABC1, quite ABC1 heavy. And um, of course, you have spin-offs, including, I mean, you just talked about uh, young younger readers, but The Week Junior and The Week Junior Science and Nature. I don't know how much you have to do with those, but they've been incredibly successful spin-offs. Yes, The Week Junior has been absolutely huge. It's, it's just fantastic. I don't, I can't claim any credit for that. Um, except for helping them to choose a name, uh, which uh, I'm very proud of, but that's a pretty minor point. Um, They have done a great job, and I think it's wonderful that a whole generation of children have got this magazine to introduce them to the joys of print media. Um, I hope that that will mean that the week can survive in a print form for a lot longer. Um, It's something about holding a magazine and reading it, I think, is very valuable and scrolling through news articles online it's just not the same thing and can you tell me about some of the other major milestones um you mentioned the website when when did that become a much more important part of your offering well the website um isn't something i am really in a position to comment on in any great detail i don't have uh, it's a se- it's run by a separate digital team um running a news website is very challenging trying to translate what we do into uh, uh, sort of online content where people expect it to be updated daily, if not hourly, uh, is very difficult. Uh, we are a small, relatively small organisation. We don't have hundreds of staff, which you would find at the big, the big media groups. So it's the, the, the website is a, is a challenge, but it, it offers a way to introduce the world to the magazine. So it's very valuable from that point of view. Um, I think they do a great job, but it is very difficult and it is not something that I do. And and you also have a podcast. Yeah, we have a podcast, which, um, again, is run by a different team, though some of us contribute to it occasionally. Uh, but it's been very successful and it's won awards and I think it's really good. So just to take you back to those early days, um, the late Felix Dennis went into partnership with the founders of the week, uh, Jeremy O'Grady and Jolyon Connell, shortly after its launch, and he bought it out completely in 2006. What was it like working with such a maverick character? Well, I mean, the, the thing about Felix was that he really was an extraordinary character and a maverick, as you say. Um, he'd made his name as one of the defendants in the Oz trial, the famous obscenity trial, um, in the, ooh, gosh, I'm casting around for a date now, late 60s. Um, but he uh, was very uh, conservative when it came to the week. He didn't want it to ever change. He loved it as it was, and he didn't ever want to interfere with it apart from to stop it changing. So he was a very good proprietor because he um, brought the whole sort of full power of his publishing company, Dennis Publishing, behind the week, helped it drive subscriptions and all those other departments, marketing circulation but he never interfered in editorially so we just got on with what we did in our office and we had this amazing commercial operation behind us and I I said I was going to come back to the process of curation which is so central to what you do at the week 
Can you talk us through that and how you decide what to include from the papers? The week has a sort of unvarying format where we pull out a number of different news stories and they're almost always the ones that are sort of comment driven. We assume that our readers are going to be getting daily news, if not hourly news, from television, radio, internet. Um, So we don't try to be a paper of record. We don't try to include everything that's happened. It'd be completely impossible. So we're looking for the subjects that have made people talk in the media. And there's not normally that many to choose from because the comment sections have comment editors who are driving forward on particular subjects. So we try to pull out the ones that have created the most lively debate, most interesting angles and focus on them. Of course, we have other sections, what we call the back of the book, where we're doing books and literature. But in terms of the news, it's um, it's, it's largely comment driven, apart from international news, where we have quite a few international stories, which are more newsy, but you might say more like bite sized news. And you've talked about the importance of debate in the round. And the week tries to give multiple perspectives rather than adopting one political stance. How easy or difficult is that to achieve? It's 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 obviously there are some subjects where everyone's pretty much in agreement, and it's just a question of discussing it. Um, so so in those cases, it's not required. Um, when they when people do disagree, then that it's it's not hard to incorporate opposing views for us because that's what we are doing and how the magazine's structured. It's it's like a conversation. We turn commentators who may not be, who very rarely are actually addressing each other, but are addressing the same topic into a sort of written conversation between them. It makes, I think, for quite a lively read and it makes for a very interesting way of getting a sense of a story without it reading like a sort of bullet point pro and against sections that you sometimes see in newspapers um it's a more it's a more reader friendly approach it's, it's not hard for us because we're not i think it helps if you've been at the week for a long time not to be party political so we don't have to we don't feel you know we're doing anything other than our jobs in 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 putting together a, a range of opinions and Carrying on from that, I was going to ask how you avoid selection bias, which is maybe something slightly different. I mean, you're, you're trying to create debate in the round, but in, you know, as individuals, you might have a tendency to, to choose certain sorts of stories. Do you try to work against that? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, of course, we'd like to think there was no selection bias, but it would be crazy to assume that we could be confident of that. And we have certain... Um, I suppose the one of the things is that we always get all the sort of newspapers read by multiple people. So there's a sense of different people having different perspectives on it. And um, just being very cautious that, say, if you start an, start an article with one approach in one week, if you're covering the same subject again, you might structure it slightly differently the next week. So that you don't always give the last word, as it were, or the first word to the same point of view. Um, so it's something we have to be really cautious of, and we are cautious of, uh, uh, cautious about. I don't, I don't, I'm sure that people would think we've got it wrong sometimes, and they do sometimes write in to say so, but it's something we make a big effort to avoid. And what do you do when it comes to very polarising 
subjects like Donald Trump, for example? Well, the thing about the Trump debate is that it's it's really interesting. I think it's a real problem in America that they've got, we've always had polarising debates here, but they've never been the actual mainstream news every week, not the government. Now in America, they have um, such a polarised readership of the American week that it's almost because there's American version of the week it's very difficult for them because one side simply doesn't want to hear what the other side says and vice versa neither side really thinks that the other's opinion is is worth listening to a lot of the time is my impression I don't read an awful lot of the American news but if you have a debate where one side thinks that the other side's point of view is so wrong as to be not worth reading then that is a problem. And I think that has always been a problem with certain sensitive topics in this country. But of course, in America, it, it's the government. So it's, it's problematic. And, and then you have issues such as climate change, where the weight of scientific opinion comes down on one side, but you still have people arguing uh, for the other point of view. How, how do you address that? We have always having to discuss how to tackle those kind of areas. And I think that we don't feel if we have one opinion that we have to counterbalance it with another opinion. We feel that we have to reflect fairly the sort of the sort of balance in the media. So I don't think that these days you really get anybody arguing that man-made climate change doesn't exist. And we, and, but you do get people arguing about how best to approach it um, so we can continue in that vein. And I haven't yet touched on two of the very biggest subjects of, uh, well, one of the last few years, one of the last few months, Brexit and COVID-19, which have been absolutely all-consuming. What would have been the challenges of covering those two topics? Well, again, Brexit was one of those subjects that became, uh, from a sort of personal professional point of view quite demoralizing to cover because the debate was just so rancorous for so long and it is sort of wearing dealing with news when everyone's really really angry for weeks and months and years and it doesn't seem to be resulting in anything very positive um from the point of view of putting together the magazine it was not difficult there was you know very strong arguments voiced by people on all sides so we reproduce those as fairly as we could. I think we were worried that our readers were ultimately just getting bored of it. But there again, in a magazine like The Week, it, we may be spending all our time reading about Brexit, but we were also covering a lot of other issues. So the readers weren't only getting Brexit. Um, COVID-19, I'd say, has been in a more intense way, more monolithic. It's been very hard to find any other news stories until the last couple of weeks. Um, but for our readers, certainly some of the feedback I've had is that they were quite pleased to read about it in the week because they were finding the television news too distressing or too emotive, too sort of worrying. There was a lot of frontline reports from intensive care, outside intensive care units and things, and they felt they were being swamped with uh, unhappy stories, uh, whereas we tended to focus more on analysis. Yes, you've certainly heard, I've, I've certainly heard quite a lot about people taking a step back from the news because it's just been too much recently and perhaps you 
provide an outlet for for people to keep up with cur- uh, current affairs while while doing that. I think that's right, and um, certainly our readers have been very um, interesting in writing in and saying that they have felt a bit overwhelmed by the COVID news, and it's been a relief to be able to turn to other things. And we have made an effort to find other things, but it's been quite difficult. It's also quite difficult separating out the news when we divide our the magazine into various different comment sections. Um, quite hard to sort of put it all apart and, and find ways of approaching it that aren't exactly like the week before and the week before and the week before and the week before. And what about the nuts and bolts of it? How do publishers, other publishers, view your use of their content? And do you ever get any pushback on that? What, what if any, are the copyright constraints? Uh, well, obviously, we um, have... Uh, we follow normal licensing procedures. So if we take a, a a large extract from a newspaper or book, we seek permission and pay whatever fees are required. Um, but what we're doing is not um, cutting and pasting copy. We are sort of re- rewriting a lot uh, to, to create a new article based on the opinions contained in the leading newspapers and so we always attribute the journalists and there is of this concept of fair usage in any case where you can take a certain amount of word count from a particular article in order to describe what people were saying and thinking. Um, beyond that, it is the case that journalism is quite a sort of collaborative business. It's not like writing a poem or or, or writing a history book. No, no, people aren't generally going back to primary sources so it's quite a lot of sort of what you might call borrowing in journalism um if you to take one example if you read an obituary sometimes it'll be written by say the subject's biographer based on all their own research and knowledge but quite often you'll find that it's cobbled together from other news reports from the from when the person was alive interviews and so on so i think that we do have a good relationship with the big publishing companies. I don't think they see us as a threat because a lot of our readers are, are, are still buying a newspaper. We're not taking away from them. And we are always crediting them as the, the main source of what we do. So their names are all there. And I think, I mean, anecdotally, I think I think Laura journalists quite like it. They quite like to be in the week because they reach readers that they don't always have. Um, in I used to know a film reviewer who was always very pleased to be in the week because the newspaper he wrote for was most of its circulation was in the northeast and he lived in the southwest and people more people saw his 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 work famously no one has a byline at the week and and you've kept quite a low profile yourself why do you feel that's important because 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 of 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 the, the what we were just talking about really i mean i'm i'm just it's just not really supposed to be about me. It's about the journalists. And I, I think it would be peculiar to attach our names to a piece that's made up of the hard work and brilliance of the British press. I mean, I, I'm really, we're very lucky at the week because the British press is so lively and so good. Um, obviously, it has its flaws and people complain about this and that. But there's some tremendous journalists and we are talking about them. We're not talking about ourselves. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, we were talking about selection bias and so on before, so it's not an entirely neutral thing, but it isn't about me and what I think. So I don't want my name in lights and I don't give many interviews and things like that. 
Well, thank you very much for giving us an interview today. Um, I, I wanted to ask how lockdown has affected the production and circulation of the magazine. Um, well, it's, it's changed it fundamentally in, in a lot of ways. And we're all now working from home. Our office closed, our editorial office closed on the I don't know, 15th of March or something. And we all shipped back to various um, back rooms and kitchens. Some of our junior staff are now working from their black shares surrounded by their flatmates. Other people are back with their parents or in back bedrooms. It's it's a it's a whole new world for us because obviously home working is not new, but actually doing everything from home is very new. And it's been quite a challenge um, for us as individuals. But more than that, it's changed the structure of the magazine. So we had to suddenly overnight lose sections that we've been publishing for 25 years, like theatre reviews, restaurants, travel. All of those had to go and be read, and sort of dreamt up. The magazine is very odd and it's barely changed for 25 years, but suddenly we had to sort of look at it again uh, quite, and changes which for us were, were massively um, radical, perhaps not so obviously so for people that read the magazine. Um, so I think those are the sort of two big things. Putting a magazine up remotely turns out to be possible, but it's quite difficult. And which brings me on to my next question, and it's possibly difficult to answer from the current perspective, but what does the future hold for the week and and will this period have changed you? Um, I think that it's there's all sorts of different ways of approaching that answer. I mean, commercially, it's we're probably entering a recession. A lot of people will lose their jobs. Advertising revenues will suffer. Our circulation may have a, they may have a knock-on effect on our circulation. Uh, these are worrying times for um, every body and every company. Um, I would imagine. Um, so I can see from a point of view of, of, a, of a person who has to read the news, it's going to be quite dark. I can see from the point of view of, of, of any commercial company, there are challenges ahead. I don't think it will fundamentally alter the editorial of the magazine. There may be some sections that don't get to reopen for some while. I'm optimistic, but the main sort of layout of the magazine can revert to normal in six months or something. Theatres will eventually open, cinemas will start showing things again. But uh, I think the news is going to be um, difficult. I think we're in for some difficult times. And, and, and you know, when the, when the country's in a difficult state, that makes for negative negativity in the media, which it becomes depressing to write about and depressing to read about. Well, I was going to ask, with, finally, with having to be so immersed in news yourself, how do you escape from it and how do you relax? What recent book or film have you particularly enjoyed? Um, well, I don't think I do get to escape from it that much because keeping abreast of the news, I mean, it's one of the downsides of not just being having four broadsheet papers and a couple of tabloids delivered to your office every day is that you could never really feel like you've covered it enough there are always new sources new voices that you feel you ought to be keeping abreast of and it's almost limitless so I don't read in the same way as I used to because I'm usually saving up for bedtime something that's at least a bit more relaxing like an interview or a feature because I haven't finished the papers that day 
Um, and I have two children, so if I'm going to watch television, especially now when we're all in lockdown, I try to make it something that they'll enjoy. So we watched Terminator the other day, which was quite fun. And uh, we watched a long-running American series called Friday Night Lights, which is quite unusual because it's set in a small town in Texas. And it's very immersive and it has so many good actors in it. And it was really nice being able to go to a small fictional town, Dillon, Texas, for an hour every night when we had been stuck in um, our neighbourhood for weeks on end. So that was really nice. I was very sad to leave Dillon, Texas. It's finished now. We've seen it all. It was seven seasons or something. Wow. Wow. Well, Karen and Law, thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast. Thank you for having me. I would like to thank ATEX again for sponsoring this podcast. If you would like to discuss how ATEX can help you with either your content or advertising management, then check out their website at atex.com or contact Alberto Mari, their Head of Business Development, on 07500 433 157 or by email at amari at atex.com. Thank you very much to Carolyn for being our guest this week. You can find out more about The Week and subscribe to the magazine at theweek.co.uk. Our guest next week is Hannah Taylor, editor of The Delicate Rebellion. The best way to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts is by subscribing via your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for listening and please join me next week on the In Publishing Podcast. <laughs>